Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, welcome back to the TJF podcast, Ian here. This week I'm going to be interviewing Graham Wetton, and we're going to be talking all about uh, riots, public order, how the police do this stuff, uh, what are the procedures and the resources that they can call on, and uh, yeah, and just talk about some general policey stuff as well, because um, Graham's a very experienced guy, and he does a lot of commentary for people like Sky News, and he's a sort of police advisor for media. So yeah, looking forward to that. Um, there's not a massive amount to talk about from the last week in policing. However, I think it would be remiss of me if I didn't at least touch on the rather shocking news of the finding of guilt against a West Mercia police officer, PC Benjamin Monk, for the manslaughter of Dalian Atkinson, who was a 48-year-old former footballer, used to play for Aston Villa many years ago. And the brief circumstances are, and I'll just read from the Guardian newspaper here, so police were called to the family address at half past one on the 15th of August 2016 and it would appear that Mr Atkinson was having a severe mental health crisis. It was described as uh, shouting that he was a messiah, smashing the window and uh, the officers tried to subdue him using a taser which failed uh, and uh, it was then used uh, I believe a third time uh, and in the course of that altercation, PC Monk kicked him twice in the head. And uh, he was taken to hospital and uh, tragically died about an hour later. So there's probably several things I would say about all of this. The first and most important thing is that it was an absolute tragedy. And it would appear that the level of force used by PC Monk was completely excessive in the circumstances and there can never be any excuse ever for kicking someone in the head. Uh, the only the only circumstances that I could imagine that being potentially justifiable would be if someone is literally trying to kill you and has got a gun or a knife or a, 
a suicide vest or something like that. I just can't imagine any other circumstances where kicking someone on the head could possibly be justified. And, um, and certainly it's not something that police officers are ever taught to do. So the, the finding of guilt against him was entirely appropriate, I think. Um, but I suppose one of the other things I would say, just, just for the sake of balance, really, is that this, to my mind, was completely inexcusable behaviour by police officers. This, to my mind, just emphasises the very, very difficult position that police officers frequently find themselves in, increasingly now, dealing with people who are having mental health crises. And, and certainly I've dealt with many, many of them uh, in my career, uh, dealing with some very, very violent people uh, in those situations. Uh, very often they end up in police stations. These are people who, who should not be in police stations because that, that, that is the very last place they should be. They should be in a psychiatric unit with medical staff treating them um, rather than rolling around on the floor with police officers out on the street um, or back in police stations. It, it happens all too often and that to my mind is indicative of a, a massive collapse in mental health services, not just in the community but, but an absence or a uh, shortage of uh, appropriate mental health beds in hospitals. But clearly in these circumstances uh, the police officer used completely unacceptable level of force and whether that was directly the result of his death or a contributing factor well only a doctor can really say that but um, but yeah I certainly don't miss having to deal with those types of individuals in those circumstances I, I did it many many times it was very very frightening um, very scary and certainly you know one of my ex-colleagues uh, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me giving her a shout out, Donna, um, who I used to work with in, in Coventry. She dealt with a uh, an individual, a uh, very similar s set of circumstances. He, he dragged her into the house where he almost beat her to death um, and bit uh, bit one of her fingers off in, in, in that struggle. Um, it was only as a result of suitably trained officers managing to break into the address and rescue her fairly quickly um, that that she survived uh, there's no question whatsoever that had not had that not happened uh, he probably would have beat her to death so so yeah horrible horrible circumstances and um, yeah there's definite definite questions to be asked of mental health services for so many of the people who who we end up having to deal with in those very confrontational situations. So, um, leaving that then, what I'm going to do again this week, because I think it seems to be working really well actually, uh, is to, to have a podcast just on the, an interview and then to have a, another episode, a slightly shorter episode, dealing with something else which um, is, is more about me kind of trying to explain certain aspects of policing. So the next two episodes are going to be dealing with uh, child sex offenders, paedophiles, uh, how the police manage them, uh, how that has changed over the years. So it's going to be two episodes, two interviews. The first one is going to be with Dave Flanagan, who 
can describe how things were done back in the 1980s and into the 90s, sort of pre-internet days, I suppose, because uh, that's a big factor in all of this. Um, and then the second episode is going to be with Arthur and Amy, who are both ex-sex offender managers, police sex offender managers, and they're going to be bringing that whole thing right up to sort of modern days in terms of showing, explaining how things are done today. But what I'm going to do before those two episodes, just to sort of help you understand how this stuff works, is I'm going to give you a bit of a sort of a 101 on child sex offenders, uh, how they think, how they behave, um, how they plan their offending, what's going through their mind a lot of the time, the different sort of types of child sex offenders, because there's lots of different types. Uh, and that will hopefully give you some understanding of, of that particular world, because it's quite, quite a specialist area of policing. And I think even a lot of quite experienced police officers um, don't really understand this stuff. Um, it tends to be the uh, preserve of uh, child abuse investigators who who get all that specialist knowledge and training. So, um, so yeah, so I'm going to give you that information. Um, there is going to be just just a health warning. There's going to be some stuff discussed in those in this uh, sort of shorter episode I've just described, as well as the two interviews that is going to make for potentially uncomfortable listening for people. So anyone who is um, you know likely to be upset by that stuff because of maybe because of their own personal history or just because it's not something they particularly want to hear about then I would skip over those episodes. Okay so let's get into the interview with Graham. Okay everyone uh, this week on the TJF podcast I'm delighted to welcome Graham Wettone uh, who is a ex-Met uh, officer. Uh, Graham uh, thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, do you want to just sort of briefly introduce yourself in terms of uh, who you are and what you've uh, what you've done while you're here? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how long you want this for him, but uh, uh, well, I joined, I mean, I joined the police back in 1977. Um, and you could do then straight from school. So I actually went into the police cadets. Uh, so joined police cadets, two years in the cadets, then joined the regulars 1979. Uh Straight posting was a home a home posting for me. I was from South London, born in South London, born in Parsons Green, grew up in Wimbledon. So they met in its infinite wisdom, posted me to Tooting Division. Um, and I spent the first three and a half years living in the section house quarters at Tooting. Right. So st started at Tooting. Um, then there was a, a lovely policy called inter-district transfer because the Met decided we couldn't manage our own careers. So every five years, they brought in a policy where you'd be moved. So they decided to develop my career by moving me about a mile up the road to Mitcham. All right. Okay. Um, spent eight years at Mitcham and Wimbledon, which literally was a home posting for me. I've lived in the borough, gone to school in the borough. So that was interesting. Come across a few people I've been to school with yeah. um, during my policing. And then I decided I wanted to do something different in policing. So by that time, I had about 13 years service. So I wanted to do surveillance, I thought. Um, didn't get through to the surveillance selection. So I decided to join the TSG. Territorial support group were, were the um, almost like the reincarnation of the special patrol group. So what what year are we now? Just so just so I can kind of because ninety three. So we're now so, up to ninety three. So for when did so when for, did the when did the SPG get disbanded? Then was it some time before that? Yeah, about eighty. In my in my mind, it was about the mid eighties. I think the the 
TSG started, I think, 87. Right, OK. So there was a gap between the SPG being disbanded and the TSG starting, and that was filled by something called D, uh, DSUs, Divisional Support Units, and I was okay. on that for a couple of postings. So from about 1980 to 1993, I was literally just a response cop, driving right. the area car, Class 1 police driver, public order trained. Um, let me that? let me guess. Was that Victor Five, Mitchum? It was. Yeah, it was. Hey, <laughs> yeah, look at that. Right, yeah. You can, take, you can take a man out of the Met. But you can't take a Met out of the man. Yeah, that you? was that was my baby. Victor Five was my my chariot. So I occasionally drove Victor One, um, just as as a relieving driver. But yeah, Victor Five was my car. Um, so drove that one for a good eight years um, on a response team. Um, as I said, 93, I just decided I needed to do something different in police. I didn't really want to just stuck, beat, stay stuck on a, a response. And I, that's no disrespect. I loved response policing. But I just felt I was getting a bit stale in my career. Yeah. Um, I fancied doing some surveillance. So I applied to do what was then, like the, the top tier, the level one surveillance teams, as they were, the, were then back then, SO11, Specialist Operations 11. Yeah. I think the teams. So I did a selection program. About 340 of us applied. They put this application out, and there was a like, huge interest in it. Um, and I managed to get down to like the last 30. So, and I don't know how. I'd never done surveillance at all. Hmm. Um, and it isn't like you see it on the telly. You know, you, you can't just sort of like follow someone from across the road and sort of hide behind the newspaper and, and sort yeah. of like duck down, et cetera. It, it's, it is. It's a real art. It's a real skill, and, isn't it? Yeah, completely. So I did the assessment processes, did like a mock drive, did a map reading exercise, did like a show on the telly called The Krypton Facts, where it's to show you like a clip of a film and then ask people questions. We even did that as part of the assessment. They showed us this like film and then asked us like 30 questions about what we just see. You know, so what, what, color, what, what color was the shoes of the <laughs> man who left the shop uh, three minutes in, you know? Yeah, so... <laughs> Um, I did that, and I, I literally got a really nice, nice bit of feedback. I know it said we're not having you. It basically said um, this is like a, and they equated it to driving for me. They said this is like an advanced driving course, and you haven't even done the standard course yet. Right. So the feedback was, if you're really interested in doing surveillance, join someone like the Territorial Support Group, the TSG, which so we're now in '93, who've been running by that time six years. They had their own surveillance teams. So it used to be on the you'd be on the TSG in uniform and carriers, but for yeah. about three months, you'd be posted to their own like in-house surveillance team. Yeah. So long story cut short, joined the TSG '93, um, did surveillance with the TSG, um, enjoyed it, but not enough mm -hmm. to make a career move out of it. Yeah. So I'm actually glad I did it in that in that format. I, I could do a bit of uniform policing, but some surveillance work, um, and decided in about mid '96. Um, I've had, and the TSG then was only a three slash four year posting. And I was yeah. a Fed rep as well, I was a federation rep for the TSG. And I just decided I need to do something again. I don't know why, it's just something, I need to do something different. Uh, and my old borough were after advanced drivers. So mm. I applied and I literally went back within about a week or two, went back to Wimbledon and Mitcham, decided to take promotion, yeah. went back onto shift work to do studying for some strange, bizarre reason, because you can't really study doing early nights and nights, but no. I tried to, uh, and then joined the sector team for a bit, community policing, neighbour policing. Yeah, That helped my studying, because it was more regular hours. Mm -hmm. Passed the promotion exam, and in 98, I was promoted to Fulham. Um, but in that, in while waiting to be um, promoted, I did the events PCs job at Wimbledon, which meant I, I covered the tennis for two championships. Okay. I basically did the policing plan for Wimbledon tennis for two championships. All oh, right, okay. 97, 98. Lots of strawberries and ice cream then? 
Yeah, a few. Yeah, there are a few. In those days, they had their own like catering marquee for the officers working on the tennis. So yeah, there was a bit of strawberries and cream. Met yeah. Police, Met Police catering strawberries and cream. It's not quite nice job. Thing. Nice job if you can get it. So how long we how long we at Wimbledon for in total uh, um, in different so, guises? About ten and a half years. There they are. And did you oh. ever did you ever see the Wombles when you were there? <laughs> did they come up? Did they come out at night? <laughs> no, they don't. No, but the um, you know, the common played a bit of a part in a couple of couple of, and obviously one major incident, the the murder up there. Um, oh, anybody, major, anybody under the age of forty has no idea who the Wombles. No, no, the, all the Wombles, or, or how <laughs> how famous Wimbledon was. Um, did a lot of police in the football at Wimbledon as well. The mighty right. Wimbledon FC, so I police those a few times. But yeah, yeah, and got promoted, and almost again, my career seems to full of my own personal life because I was born in Parsons Green in Fulham. My whole family, mum and dad's, were all from Fulham. So on promotion as a sergeant, I go to Fulham. So you, so you must have been you must have been quite a rare breed in the Met, being actually a Londoner in the Met, because because when I was when I <laughs> when I joined the Met, um, I don't think there was any Londoners in my class. They were all like from every other part of the UK. But yeah. that was the thing. I've said this before on the podcast is that the thing I used to love about the Met was uh, one of the many things I used to love about the Met was just the unbelievable diversity of accents and people from all over the Commonwealth as well, wasn't there? South Africa and yeah, New Zealand, Australia, um, lots of other Commonwealth countries. It was really fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, but, and I loved that. I thought, I mean, in the cadets, the same thing. There were, there were literally people from all over the country. And I was quite rare being London-born and family all from London. But apparently, you know, it's almost going full circle now. They want to just recruit. They went for a process, didn't they? Just recruiting people within London, within the M25. You had to have a London postcode to apply, which I thought was... And it's it's about being representative of the community. Well, I actually thought we were we were more diverse when we recruited from across the country than when we just recruit from within London. But Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. So what I want to get on to, this podcast, I want this podcast to be majoring on public order so public order you are something of a public order expert because obviously you then went off didn't you so just tell me about your public order experience because obviously that's kind of started around those Wimbledon tennis days but then morphed into much more mainstream public order didn't it yeah the latter part of my career I was a sergeant at Fulham for four years 98 to 2002 and then a job come up at the public order branch at Scotland Yard and my my policing background or public order background had all been about football right from Wimbledon from Wimbledon football um I'd always volunteered to do football duty I'd love football football's a big part of my life I was I was um fortunate enough to be part of the Met Police football club management committee for 25 years so football had a big part in my life professionally and and personally I ran two police football teams we used to have in-house football competitions so I used to run the divisional side at on the TSG and at Wimbledon for about eight years at Wimbledon played for right. full of police as well so public order football you know, all, all sort of comes in one thing for me. So yeah. I went to Fulham as a skipper in 2000, uh, in 98, sorry. And in 2002, this job come up, but it was on the public order desk rather than the football desk. And I met, do have two like desks. They had a football football unit and a, they used to have anyway, public order unit. And I applied to this job thinking, well, I haven't really done that much public order style policing. I've done most of it. It's been, all been about football. Yeah. And when I was yeah. a sergeant at Fulham, we went home and away with Chelsea, Fulham, um, and some home games for QPR as well, because Fulham... The borough of Hammersmith and Fulham's got three football grounds. Yeah, and I was one of the, the two sergeants that, that at that time used to run like a dedicated. They called them football spotters, and yeah. our role was to go to every game, 
basically identified the known, they were called hooligans back in the day. In the yeah, yeah, yeah. They're now risk supports. Risk groups, that's it. Yeah, risk groups. So our job was to basically know our own risk group and effectively police them out of any disorder. Yeah. Because if you, it's, it's it's almost a deterrent for you if somebody, a police officer, actually knows who you are. Yeah. yeah. For you to start committing offences because you know you're going to get arrested. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people commit offences because they're largely anonymous. They don't think they're going to get yeah, caught. Yeah. So, so, so the, for anybody, so just to pause there for a minute, so for anybody listening to this who doesn't really understand this, this, this is kind of the period, correct me if I'm wrong here, Graham, this is the period where football hooliganism was a massive problem. Uh, we yeah. were like the, we were considered the the sick man of Europe, weren't we? Uh, we? We exported football violence all over Europe, and we had the shocking scenes of Heisel Stadium, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, we had um, some horrific incidents where you know, and even even within London, you know, there was pitched battles almost every weekend, wasn't there, between mm. various football clubs? So you would have come in around that kind of time wouldn't you yeah like yeah throughout my career from 1980 onwards i, I pl regularly police football but that sort of football spotting role that that intelligence officer role within football um evolved in the in sort of like the the mid to late 90s etc and euro 96 etc in the early 90s so that sort of started for me around late 80s early 90s when i get to fulham in 98 Still in the early stages, but on the on the on the back of basically Euro '96 and significant disorder scene, and as you mentioned, the the '80s, etc. Policing decided it needed to do something about um, you know trying to curb disorder within football. We knew it was organised groups as such. We knew they were the, the same faces committing a disorder. So that was a natural progression for me. I've been doing public order policing throughout my career. My my, my first exposure was Brixton '81 as a young PC with a long shield. Right. And petrol bombs being thrown at sort of first time ever on the mainland. So mm. I'd always had a an interest um, for public order policing. I never might have been, um, you know, shield trained. We used to go to our shield training centre, yeah, where you practice your tactics, all based on long shields in those days, uh, yep. all based on basically Roman style tactics, yeah, with, with different units. Five, five, they were then five man units, three yeah. shields, two backups, yeah. Um, so quite rigid tactics yeah. through the early 80s that have evolved over years um, mm -hmm. at the Public Order Training Centre. So I'd always been had an interest in public order policing. This job came up in 2002 at the Yard, and I went up against some real good candidates who'd, who'd been on the public order side of policing yeah. more than the football side. And I actually wanted a football job, but a mate of mine was already doing the football job. Yeah. So I applied for a public order job, got it, and then spent eight years effectively dealing with every protest and demonstration in London from 2002 to 2010 when I retired and covered all the major protests inside and outside London. Because we had a bit of a, a sort of unofficial national remit around yeah, yeah. protest groups. Yeah, so yeah. left wing, right wing, Islamic extreme Islamic groups, etc., environmentalists, animal rights, uh, you name a protest group, Fathers of Justice, Whatever the cause was, if they became a protest issue, yeah, within they, turn, they turned up in London, didn't they? It was my, it was my, I say my units, myself and a couple of PCs, um, and I had the responsibility to manage the intelligence and evidence gathering teams in London right. and to train them as well. Brilliant. So um, I, I often say to people because I I transferred out of the Met in two thousand and two uh, up to the West Midlands, and you know uh, one of the things I say to people people say what was the big difference between the Met and 
a large urban force like the West Midlands, I would say that that was the single biggest difference is the amount of public order mm. that goes on in London compared to anywhere else in the UK. So if you've got a if you've got an axe to grind, it doesn't matter what it is, and you've got sufficient numbers to cause a an issue, uh, you will turn up in London. They will turn up in London and yep. uh, cause not necessarily cause problems. Sometimes it'll be perfectly, you know, it's the, the whole issue of the democratic right to protest. And we can come on to talk about that in a little bit. Mm. But it's a basic human right, isn't it? To turn up and voice your unhappiness about whatever it is that you're unhappy about. But yeah. certainly London was the place where, and still is, if, if there's anything happening from a public order point of view, it turns up in London, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It comes down to the seat of government. And, and I, I, I'm glad we're going to talk about that. I was always quite passionate and quite keen as well with, with the teams I was working with, the intelligence and evidence government teams. People have a right to speak, but with that right comes some responsibilities not to commit offences, not to cause um, antagonism mm. or make people fr- af- afraid or fear of violence, etc. So, you know, that, that right to speak is key for me. And, and we were always, you know, the, the Met and policing uses the terms to facilitate protests. And it started off being facilitate lawful protest. That changed from adapting to protest in 2009 um, to facilitate peaceful protest. Mm-hmm. So we changed, you know, the word, and that was quite key. Mm. So all strategies now are about facilitating peaceful protest, but we never quite got an actual, like, in the box definition of what, you know, what, where does peaceful stop being peaceful? Yeah, and I yeah. think that's why some, in some respects, in the last, I'd say, over 10 years, mm-hmm. policing has been a bit confused over what, what is peaceful yeah. and what isn't. What then starts, yeah. like, starts yeah. breaking the law sufficiently for the police yeah. to take some proactive action, start yeah. arresting people. Yeah, and certainly we'll come on to talk about that later on, won't we? You know, talk about some of the stuff that where COVID has been a particular headache, isn't it? I think it'd be really helpful um, because I'm, whilst I'm not going to pretend that I'm some expert on public order because I'm not. Um, you know, I was level I was level two public order trained for many years as a mm. as a PC and as a sergeant and a, as an inspector. But if I'm honest, uh, as you know, the level twos tend not to be used in anger very frequently. It tends mm. to be the level one. So it'd be really helpful if you sort of just sort of describe some of the mechanisms that are. So imagine imagine a typical fairly large scale public order event that is going to be planned so let's say it's a demonstration a large yeah. demonstration against uh something that people feel very strongly about and it's going to turn up in london so what are the resources what is it what are the structures what are the command structures what are the different resources that would be brought in to kind of manage an event of that nature it's um you can look at it's almost every weekend at the moment lockdown anti-vax etc um different issues or some issue comes up it starts off and it, it, within london they might have a, a a planning unit they've changed names it, it was it was commissioner's office 11 co 11 when i was there it's now i think mo6 and they've had another title in the 10 years they met love having um acronyms and titles as you know there's mm-hmm. it is similar to some tv programs but it, there's all sorts of acronyms and titles but effectively as soon as you get information and events taking place and sometimes there are bona fide genuine organizers of the demonstration they will contact the police and say i want to hold a demonstration in other cases you don't get contacts you just see it advertised on social media so the met's planning planning unit will pull together um and they will decide who's going to be the command team so the command team set up by the gold 
And public order is based on role, not rank, which should be, in my view, anyway. It's role, not rank. So it doesn't matter. The commissioner isn't in charge of the public order event. The deputy commissioner isn't in charge of the public order event. Gold is in charge of the public order event. Gold sets the strategy for the event. So gold, the first thing in the Met, gold tends to be at what rank? It can be any, literally, it, can be, it tends to be a senior-ish rank, but it, does, it isn't the commissioner or deputy commissioner. Right. Because in public order terms, it's, it's someone who's done the advanced public order course, the command course, mm. and they set the strategy. So it can be anything from a superintendent up to commander. It has actually been, I think, a DAC, I think um, a couple of senior officers have met and our deputy assistant commissioners, they've golded recent events. Right. It doesn't tend to go much higher than that because there has to be some sort form of oversight or overview of every public order event. So you have but to they have to have, as a minimum, they have to have the strategic public order commander's yeah. course. Yeah. That's a yeah. nationally accredited course, yeah. isn't it? Nationally accredited course to be a, a, a public order commander. So Gold sets the strategy for the event. So the first meeting is always a strategy meeting where they listen to the information intelligence about, about the event itself. There's then a silver nominated, uh, again, Advanced Public Order Commanders course, uh, a silver sets the tactics, but the tactics have to match what the strategy is. Mm -hmm. So effectively, gold sets the strategy, how we're going to police this event, our intentions, our objectives around this facilitating peaceful protest is normally in every single one. Yeah. Uh, and this goes for every single event, be it a football match, music concert, so any sort of public gathering, yeah. um, there'll be this sort of structure, gold, silver and bronze. Yeah. And the bronzes are basically those are the people that actually make the tactical plan happen. So silver gets to decide the resources, not gold. Mm -hmm. Clearly, they, the gold has a say in what sort of resources are going to be to achieve the strategy. But the actual tactics, how the tactics are going to, you know, what tactics are going to use, if they're going to need horses, dogs, uh, the helicopter, marine support unit, firearms teams, the tactics, the toys, the tools in the box to be used on the event are decided by the silver commander. Right. They then appoint a number of bronze commanders, again, all done a public order commander course, who will make the tactics, the plan work on the day. And you can have, you can have, and anybody can be a bronze. I've, I've bronzed loads of events as bronze intel. Um, so it's not, again, role, not rank. Yep. So it comes down to effectively, and it should be, having the best person in place, not about having the most senior person in place. Yep. So it comes down to knowledge and experience in the public order world. Um, so gold, silver, bronze is, a, is the effective structure for all events, be it football, protests, demonstrations, music concerts. And then there's a lot of so um, just to, just for in the spirit of full sort of disclosure. So I was I was a in force intelligence. I was I was the intelligence lead on a lot of these kind of major events in the West Midlands. Um, so as you know, uh, there's also a lot of other partners, non-police partners, who get brought mm. in as well, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that, that command structure actually is replicated in the other emergency services because it came from the, the uh, review into Broadwater Farm in 1985. Right. Because the command and control for Broadwater Farm, and I was deployed there as well, the command and control for Broadwater Farm was, was woeful on the night itself. They had no idea what, what, what um, resources they had. They had people turn up from all over London in different vehicles. There was no actual command and control. Mm. So when they reviewed it, they came in with this gold, silver, bronze structure that's been adopted by the fire service, the ambulance service. You get a major incident, a critical incident, such as Grenfell mm -hmm. um, or, a, or the floods that we had a couple of years ago in Surrey, the ambulance service would have a gold, silver, bronze structure. The mm -hmm. fire service would have a gold, silver, bronze. So the emergency services can work to the same structure in mm -hmm. dealing with whatever the incident is, not just 
protest demonstrations, football matches. But if it's a significant major incident, train crashes, etc., the fire yeah. service will appoint a gold, a silver, and their bronzes, as will the ambulance service. So okay. emergency services can work together, and everybody knows the roles other you know, other agencies are, are, are doing. And in terms of the command platform, so that's the physical location where all of this is kind of happening. What does that look like? Uh, most days, the <clears throat> most forces have got a control room, force control room. So we just had the G7 down in Cornwall. They would have set up, Devon Cornwall would have set up a control, a controlled place at some at somewhere or other. They identify a location. We went up to Scotland in 2005. That was based in Edinburgh. They had like satellite control rooms at Glen Eagles um, mm-hmm. for where the actual uh, conference took place. So to identify an operations room, a control centre. The Met have got their own um, specific locations, one in North London, one in South London. Right. The one, one's a backup for the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, gold will stay in the control centre, as on most big events, so will silver. Yep. So they've got a complete overview of everything. They can see all the cameras. They're getting all the, feed, the feeds coming in from the different units, the different bronzes. Mm-hmm. Um, on some of the smaller events, silver can actually come out onto the event itself and actually be out on the ground. So on some of the smaller protests and demonstrations I've been on, silver has been actually literally on the ground with an, a yep. tactical advisor and a logist because everything yep. gets logged. There's decision logs for all those, those the bronzes, the silvers, golds, all keep a decision log. Right, okay. And sometimes, and I've, I've sat with them, they write more about what they're not going to do than what they are going to do. Because in policing, we write everything down. If it isn't written yeah. down, it didn't happen. So they have to justify all the actions that they take, specifically in public order policing and in that sort of world, in, in like dealing with critical incidents. Okay. So, so when you were when you were working at the um, in the public order unit, um, did you actually physically go out onto the ground at these demos? Yeah, yeah. My role was my, well. I love being out on the ground. I love being I like being a bit proactive. So I would run. I would manage the intelligence and evidence gathering teams actually out on the road. So full uniform, overt. It was all overt. Nothing covert at all. Um, managing the intelligence and evidence gathering teams and then feeding the radio comms back to the control room. Occasionally, I, I sat in the control room right. and managed it inside. So it's normally like an inte- intelligence coordinator in the control room, receiving the messages from whatever resources they've got out and passing, prioritising the messages to the command team, effectively to silver. You're effectively, okay. you are silvers, to coin a phrase, they are silvers, eyes and ears, the intel and evidence gathering okay. teams. And their class, to correct me if I'm wrong here, um, PLO is a police liaison officer, is that right? They're slightly different. The PLOs were a recent innovation about eight years ago. Um, again, from adapting to protest, the report would come out after the um, death of Ian Tomlinson in London. Uh, and the feeling there was that we needed to be a bit more um, engaged with people protesting. So we needed liaison officers. Okay. So the PLO role sort of evolved from that. Personal view, wear the blue, the blue yeah, they wear the light blue. Yeah, well, intel and evidence gathering teams within London, anyway, started wearing like a, a royal blue, like a Chelsea, Chelsea man, like Chelsea blue, yeah, yeah, Parsons Green, Chelsea blue, mm-hmm. uh, on their yellow jackets. When the PLOs come in, they use a slightly different, like a baby blue, a very, very light blue, pale blue jacket. Um, right, so okay. they wear those. The evidence gathering teams tend to have like a yellow high vis with a blue body on it, which, which. Basically, I brought in when I started my job at the yard. I felt that intel and evidence gathering teams should be um, easily identifiable to the command team and to other units. They knew what role they were doing. There was some some kickback on that and that we then identifying ourselves. But we're over anyway. So I really couldn't see the point. And and after after a while, most people realised... Who we were, most most of them knew we were anyway. All the football risk guys knew who I was. They they knew me by sight. 
yeah. as did the protest world. They, they recognised the same officers yeah, yeah. week in, week out. So, so, so when you're right on the ground, um, it's an interesting one because, you know, when, when these demos get very frequently, very selectively broadcast to the, the, the news media around the world, there's a tendency, I think, for people to see police officers as this kind of faceless, and I think there's a there's a deliberate tactic at use by some of these uh, media organisations to almost dehumanise the police officers mm. uh, and in these events, uh, you know, to show them as sort of like these sort of automaton-like yeah. individuals. But but you know, and I know that every single one of those officers is, you know, maybe they're doing that today, but then two days later <laughs> they'll be back out on a neighbourhood somewhere. They'll be they'll be the same officers who are coming round to report your burglary or to look for your granny who's. Mm. who's got dementia who's kind of gone wandering off or something aren't they i, I found it i, I was I, we'll cover it later I, I, you know when i left police i moved in to do some media work and i was i remember i was covering a student protest in 2010 and, and the presenter asked me when's the next shift come on as in they were dealing with, like with disorder on whitehall and i was i was almost like lost for words for once um i said there is no second shift and she, what do you mean i said well the officers you see there will then be on that on for that event the whole day that there's not like a second there's not a relieving team that comes on and they are drawn from like normal response response policing teams all my teams all the intel and evidence gathering teams were either area car drivers home beat officers sergeants custody sergeants couple of detectives they all had day jobs, for want of a better term. Yeah, yeah. But they had a, and they volunteer. They don't get paid more money. They yeah. volunteer to do this public order job or a football job because it interested them. Yeah, so yeah. they weren't, they, you know, they, they're not like a special unit that comes out just to yeah. deal with protests and demonstrations. You know, day before they could have been dealing with stabbings, domestic incidents, road traffic collisions. They had day-to-day policing jobs, but they had an interest in yeah. public order policing. So That's they right. come from all sides of policing. So in terms of, um, so the lion's share, as we just said, the lion's share of people who are out on these events are are just your day-to-day bobbies who you'll be walking past or driving past in the street or whatever. Yeah. But obviously we do have some kind of more dedicated, I suppose for want of a better word, hard-edged resources hmm. that are particularly useful for public order policing. So just talk about some of those uh, for, for a bit. What other sort of resources can we draw upon? Well, when they're, when they're, as go, we go back to that strategy meeting with gold, then there's a tactical meeting with silver. So silver then, then chairs their own tactical meeting where they decide what, what tactics they're going to use. And that's where the decision is taken about either level three, level two, level one, public order trained officers. Mm-hmm. Every police officer is level three trained. Basic, but and it's basically crowd. It says crowd control, but basically it's dealing with crowds. It's just moving people on, holding a call and holding your, your colleague's bell. So every officer is trained in their initial training to a level three standard. So they can all just basically turn up and do basic crowd control stuff. They're not trained in public order tactics in dealing with wearing protective equipment. That's the level two officers. But again, they're just as we said. Area car drivers, response car drivers, control room staff, etc. They've been on the public order training course where I think once a year they turn up at whatever public order training centre is in their force and they have wooden blocks and petrol bombs thrown at them and they have to do the public order tactics. They're the level twos. Level ones are the forces um, public order response teams. There's different, there's different names across the country. I think the, the Manchester call it like the TAG group or something. In London, it's the TSG. And they are trained to an enhanced level in public order tactics. They go more frequently to the public order training centre. And they're effectively the, 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 the disorder team that will come out when things are starting to get slightly more serious and more disorderly. 
But it's fair to say that um, the rest of the time they're out doing proactive crime patrols and all yeah, sorts absolutely. of things. So they're effectively, they're the, they're the, whichever force it is, they're the force's response to a public order incident. Now, whether that's a, and I've, I've done all of this, I've done, I've done missing person searches on the banks of the Thames in Woods as a TSG officer. I've done door-to-door inquiries for murder teams. I've done scene control for crime scenes. So that they're basically, they're a mobile reserve, mobile resource to deal with significant or critical incidents. Do they still call it Commissioner's Reserve? Yeah, they do. Yeah, the, in the Met, they call it the Commissioner's the, the Commissioner's Reserve is the on-call team. So the TSG have, you know, a couple of, you, you'll, you'll, you'll be on a rotor or shift rotor anyway. And every so often you'll, you'll, you'll pick up the Commissioner's Reserve shift. So across London, there could be three TSG units on and one of them will be the Commissioner's Reserve. The other two be on what's called an area reserve or, or doing, not area reserve now, they'd be doing like borough-based jobs. And, and different areas could almost bid for the TSG to be on their area to deal with a, a particular crime problem. Mm. So if there's significant issues with, I don't know, disorderly behaviour, antisocial behaviour, loads of people gathering, um, they can almost bid for the TSG to come to their policing area for a period of time to try and deal with this because they're a, they're a basically... Very like, flexible uh, resource. Yeah, flexible resource with a, a significant number of people that can turn up Largely, and they're not probationers, so they're out of their like three-year, two-year, three-year initial probation period. So they're, in inverted commas, experienced officers with skills to come in and deal with specific problems. Okay. So what about, um, there's obviously horses and dogs and other things like that as well, isn't there? Yeah, that's part of, again, part of the tactical meeting where you sit down with Silver. Silver then decides, looking at the intelligence, the information available, looking at maybe previous intelligence and previous demonstrations process from that particular group or opposing groups. We've had the Israeli, Israeli-Palestinian demos recently as well. So you look at if there's going to be an opposition to the day. Have you got information about an opposition? Do you need? And then they'll look at how many police support units, PSUs, they need. And a PSU is one, an inspector, three sergeants, 21 PCs. So how many PSUs do you need? Um, and then do you need specialist support from either dogs, and dogs do public order work as well, mounted branch, barriers the whole thing is part of the tactics um road closures traffic units uh helicopter i always i always find in my experience the best place the the best place to be around police dogs is as far away from them as possible (laughs) (laughs) yeah they don't recognize police uniform that well (laughs) no no one of the scary one of the (laughs) one of the scariest uh, things i ever saw of the police dog was uh we we were chasing a a stolen um car in south london uh i was the operator on lima 2 which is the clapham area car uh, the bandit vehicle rammed, um, I think it was Mike 1, which was uh, one of our neighbouring area cars. And then, then we all got out on foot and we, we were chasing the driver and the passenger through this um, kind of council estate. And I could I could hear the dog handler shouting, uh, dog released or something like that, at which point anybody with any sense at all stops. The stops. police, the police yeah. stop. You put your hands in the air. And then I felt this dog run past me at about 100 miles an hour. I could feel the wind of it coming past me. And the first person that took out was the PC who was right in front of me. And he savaged this PC. It was horrific. He took a huge chunk out of the PC's leg, inside of his leg, um, to the point where he had to have, I think, plastic surgery on the leg. So, so yeah, wow. you, don't, you don't mess about with them, do you? No, but a, but a big fan, great resource, public order-wise, fantastic resource. And I've, you know, as I said, response policing for over half of my career, TSG policing, etc. they're a great resource. They're fantastic with dogs when they come out. Very, very well trained. 
Well, handlers always look like being dragged through a hedge backwards, though. They're, and they're, they're normally grumpy. They work with dogs. They're not that great at working with their colleagues, I always found. <laughs> one of my, my best mates an ex-dog handler. My, my, my other mates, two boys, uh, are both in the dog section. So I've, I've got a lot, of, a lot of friends in the dog section. But um, great cops. And they're normally really practical, busy people go to the dog section because that, that's yeah. what you want. You want someone who, who wants, to, wants to go to the calls and is available to go to the calls. Um, yeah. as often as possible but yeah great and as for horses well again i know nothing about horses but police horses as you know graham police oh. horses are bloody massive aren't they i don't know where they find them but they're like the biggest horses in the world and um and again you don't want to be too close to them because if they stand no. your, if you stand in your toe it hurts doesn't it well both i always found both things were dangerous um so <laughs> again loads of football um because we use a mounted branch a hell of a lot of football great vantage point up high sitting on the yeah. horse they can look across the crowd um so great great info intel um source from a, most of the mounted branch and they were all part of they're all part of the public order branch so um i used to be like the intelligence manager of the public order branch as well so i have to after that I had to review and assess any intelligence reports they put on which was interesting but great respect for them never liked it at all I've ridden a horse once on holiday hate i didn't <laughs> like it at all didn't get on with it so i was never going to go anywhere near horses no no um, we just called them shit machines didn't we oh mate they're um yeah standing <laughs> they, they dribble and they want to eat everything and the other end isn't that great either so yeah, I wish you said I loved seeing them at football, but I'd always have kept a, a, a big distance from them. So I'm uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, a guy called Tony Travis, who's uh, an ex Sabres mounted branch for many many years, and I'm really looking forward to interviewing him because I know absolutely nothing about horses <laughs> apart from the fact that they shit everywhere. Listen, um, just go on to talk about what goes wrong in your experience with public order events. What what goes wrong and why? What what are the sort of things that can that can end up causing everyone a problem. We could do a whole podcast on this one, mate, honestly. The, um, I've been slightly dismayed sometimes in, in the Met's response to public order incidents over the last 10 years. I think there's been, I think they've lost an awful lot of experience. There's not been a, a great, a, almost like continuity. Um, no disrespect to, to the people there still doing the job now, but I think they've slightly lost their way in public order policing. It, it, it's frequently being criticised in either lack of action or overaction, right? Um, so you, you can't get it. You can't get it right or wrong. If you step in, you're being overzealous. If you don't step in, you're not. You're, you're, you know, you're not being harsh enough with people or firm enough. Um, so it's a really difficult position to be in to, to almost like make those decisions. I think sometimes where they get it wrong, they step in too soon. It's a real art, public order. It's actually a specialism in my view, and I'm biased, but I think it's a real specialism. I think you have to have a real calm manner. You have to assess what's going on. You have to consider almost, you almost have to do a ball blast of what if. What if we do this? What if this happens? What if that happens? And we used to run that on the, the, the tactical meetings before every public order event. We do yeah. look at what if scenarios. You know, what if they turn here? What if they don't go down there? What if they sit down? What if they don't sit down? What if they lock on? And I think sometimes the police, I don't think they're actually their own their own best friends when it comes to almost informing people as to why they're doing something. It's almost like, it's started becoming like a secretive world. We're not going to tell people or show people. And I get the tactics side of things. You don't want to disclose all your tactics and what you're what you're about to do. But by the same token, talk about recent incidents. Clapham was one. I could see why they stepped in at Clapham. So, but so just on this one, this is the Sarah Everard yeah. vigil at Clapham, wasn't it? 
Yeah, the vigil for Sarah Everard, and clearly we can't talk about it because the case case is still subject to um, coming to court. But the actual protest, the vigil for her, and, and the, there was some disorder towards the latter part of it. But I sometimes think policing doesn't actually not quite publicise what they're doing, but almost like explain what's happening and why we're taking certain actions. They're great at writing it all down in decision logs. Hmm. But I think even, and I looked at, I was looking at the feed from Devon and Cornwall down at G7, and I thought that, that their, their feed, their informative, feed, the social media feeds were really quite informative. So, so when you say telling people, um, do you mean telling people who are physically there or do you mean pumping out messaging on social media? Both. Well, both, right. Yeah, both. I think it's really key, and they're getting slightly better. The police has taken a while to catch up with social media, in my view, mm-hmm. um, in, in respect of using it as a as a, as a a source of information, but yeah. not just telling people that are at the event, if you don't move, you don't stop yeah. being, you know, we're going to deploy protected officers, we're going to deploy shields, etc., horses, yeah. dogs. Yeah. Not just for them, but then if you don't actually explain why you're doing something, you basically leave a vacuum, you leave a yeah. gap. Yeah. And and we'll come on to it. The yeah. media will fill the gap because yeah. they have to fill the gap. They can't just say we've got no idea why they're doing this because yeah. what, what, we wouldn't turn on the news programs or the radio programs. We want to be informed what's happening. Yeah. So if the police aren't telling us what the information is, if the police aren't telling us why they're doing something or what's happening, mm-hmm. we'll have to start speculating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, I think that's where things start to go so, wrong. People so start my, making up things. So my observations on that one, I think you're absolutely right, is that they've been very, very slow to adopt uh, social media in a very proactive mm. way. And as you know, the people who tended to control the force social media accounts tended to be corporate communications staff who yeah. would be very comfortable sending out oh, here's um, the result of the arrests we did this morning and there's all the drugs that we seized and then look and we find a gun and aren't we wonderful? That type of stuff, which is good. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah. do that. I think we should. But it's that kind of real time sat there almost shoulder to shoulder with a decision maker who says, right, I want you to put this out now. But to my mind, I think it's a massively important tool in today's society, isn't it? And uh, if you don't use it in a proactive way, as you say, it's someone else will will write the story for you, won't they? I think that's where it starts to, I won't say go wrong, but I think that's where they start to lose 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 control of the narrative. Um, I think that's why you get sometimes quite a negative narrative around public order policing. Mm. There was, you know, recently we had that, that all that stuff down in Bristol when they were protesting down in Bristol. That that got, got some quite negative press. Kill the bill, kill the bill protest down in Brist, Bristol um, yeah. with people outside the police station. And it's not just London. I mean, London does get the centre and it gets the, the lion's share of the, the protest. But you are starting to see stuff around the country now with people almost like in their own local areas. Yeah. And I think policing just needs to be really conscious of the fact that that people are looking for what's happening. And they yeah. want information. They want to be aware of it. It's always like the the silent majority who support policing. Mm. Um, they want to know basically you're doing a good job that the police are actually there preserving order and and mm. facilitating whatever word peaceful protest, lawful protest. Yeah, but they're doing what they should be doing. They're not letting things happen. And it's it's a speculation, I think. And once you start getting once something comes out on social media, be it a video clip or something. It starts becoming a truth for many people because there's nothing to refute it or there's nothing to clarify what, what you've seen or heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things I find quite shocking in the last few months is the re-emergence of these ACAB placards, people yeah. running around with all cops are bastards placards. And, and very often these are 
these are not hardline activists, extremists that you who, who you would expect to be behaving like that. These are kind of quite young people who look kind of uh, well presented, clean. Um, they look like, you know, my daughter or my son, you know, they, they, they don't look like people who, you know, who you would worry about. And I just think I, I find that really quite alarming that that there is this kind of increasing tendency to vilify the police in this sort of way. And and I what I want to say when I see that is, hold on here, you're saying all cops are bastards. So do you mean, when you say that, do you mean uh, the people who are investigating child rapes? Mm. Do you mean the people who are stopping terrorist attacks? Yeah. Do you mean, do you, is that the cops you mean? Or is it, which cops are you talking about here? Yeah. Because because the, the cops are this kind of huge family of hundreds of different disciplines. So is it the child abuse investigators? Is it the people who are going to investigate your burglary? Are they bastards? Uh, who, which which officers are we talking about here? You know, do do you find that a bit odd? I think policing is probably the, the a unique profession, vocation, career, but a unique organisation that that we're all judged by the actions of possibly one individual at any week. One 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 police officer, one cop does something, and the whole service is is the same. And I've I've always found that really quite bizarre that you would. You would, you know, if you had a bad experience with a builder, a plumber, an electrician, you don't think all builders are bastards or all plumbers are, are rip-off merchants, um, all bankers are, whatever. Yeah. You know, you 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 take them, you take people as as they are, and you know, police in such a we mentioned it, diverse. There are there are I've worked with some real absolute tools in my time. Yeah. Um, who are I really if someone if one of my family called found the police, I really wouldn't want a couple of individuals to turn up on their doorstep. Yeah, yeah. Um, because they're either either not very proactive, they're not really not really professional. But mm. by the same token, they probably had some skills that 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 actually endeared them to parts of policing. You know, everybody's yeah. got their own their own strengths and, and weaknesses. Yeah, policing is, is, it covers so many different aspects of society because it has to. Yeah, yeah. That it's it's I find it like you. I find it really quite quite bizarre that that policing seems to be judged on the actions of. Just a couple of individuals, and so, everybody is a bastard. So when you're out, when you're out in the ground um, dealing with a public order uh, protest, yeah, in your experience, um, and some of these groups, as you know, are 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 quite uh, violent, aggressive, um, very anti-police, very anti-establishment generally. What's it like actually having to try and? have some sort of dialogue in real time <laughs> with those sorts of people um i always found i always found that um, tact and good humor um got me through um some people i would engage with others it was just it's not really worth not worth the oxygen or the bread to talk to because they, they clearly were just so had so much animosity and anger um, mm. I just found just, and I used to smile a lot. Uh, yeah, uh, I think it was nicknamed by one group Smiler or something, either Crocodile Smile or something. I think one group dubbed me on the internet. Um, beware of his crocodile smile because I'll smile while I'm sort of like pushing people back off a barrier or a cordon or something. But yeah, I just found tact and good humor gets you through because if you actually start listening to what they're saying to you and start taking it on board, then um, I'll bet you come back the next day. 
I used to, I just, had some I had some horrible things said to me at demonstrations from some of these sort of left wing activists. Things oh, like horrendous. I, I I hope I hope you die of cancer. Yeah, cancer. Yeah, I, I had all that. Your mum. I'm going to find. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out. I had this said to me once. Um, I'm going to find out where you live, and I'm going to rape your wife whenever you're on night duty. You know, it's like oh, that's nice. Had the same oh, things, and, and bear in mind, it's it, you know my surname. Uh, at least one of my relations joined the police and changed, um, you know, changed his name because it, it, it's that it's that distinctive. I used to do voters checks, and it was like my mum, my dad, and me on the list, and, and, and a couple of my cousins because it's not, it's not a wide ranging name. It's really unique. So, and I'm having these things said to me, and I do feel for for people who join the job these days because you know back in the eighties, nineties, you couldn't really find somebody. There was there wasn't the internet. There wasn't like Facebook and social media accounts, etc. So you couldn't like locate people through their school and their families. I think it's it's a lot more dangerous for cops these days, and they need to be a lot more socially aware and, and almost like aware of their own security when it comes to um, identity, etc. We all I've had that said to me so many times. I mean, the the reality with this stuff, Graham, as you know, because um, we're kind of we're kind of long in the tooth, aren't we? It's all talk, isn't it? Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of it is all talk, but it's but it's hard to realize that when you're young in service and you've got somebody literally frothing at the mouth spitting in your face saying things like i'm going to find out you know what i mean i'm going to find out where you live and i'm going to burn your house down you know what i mean and that's stuff that's been said to me i mean i used to get to the point where uh, and that stuff is it's not just said in demonstrations is it it's said in the cell cell block it's sent out on the street it's said and and i you know as i was having people say that to me in cell blocks as a superintendent for god's sake you know what i mean so and i just laugh it's like yeah whatever mate yeah good luck you're just remind you you're the one in handcuffs not me yeah um but it's it it is hard for younger officers to deal with that sort of stuff isn't it it is, but um, uh, I mentioned, you know, I policed the area I grew up in. I went to school in, so I met a few people I've been to school with who knew me and, knew, and basically knew where, where mum was still living. So, and I had things said to me, and I was like, well, you, you know, you know me, you know where I am. And I've met people outside, and like you said, 99.9% of the times that you see them at like three, four days later or a week later, you go, and you're off duty, and you're like walking down a road or in, in a, shop, a shop somewhere. Oh, hello, remember me? And they're like, oh, uh, and it, it, it is... Um, it is very different, but I do feel for, you know, society is a lot more open these days with, with personal information, etc. You can find people a lot easier. Um, and I do feel I do feel for some of the, the younger cops. Yeah, now. I mean, some of the stories I heard from the Clapham thing were terrible. You know, there's female officers. Yeah. I mean, bearing in mind, this is a vigil, peaceful vigil, call me old fashioned, peaceful vigil to protest against, you know, um, violence, vi- against vi- violence against women. And you've and got women women at that event who were telling other women police officers i wish you were gonna i wish you could be ripped and murdered yeah i know and it's like yeah. seriously but that didn't come out until after after they put the officers into restore order or regain the bandstand whatever but that, that, you know all that didn't come out until afterwards um, which yeah. i thought was was partly what i got it wrong so um so yeah so public order massive subject we could talk all day about all the different <laughs> tactics and stuff but um just to sort of move things slight the slightly different direction so as you know i've written a book which uh, is called tango juliet foxtrot which will be published later on this year um and you before i talk about that and about your thoughts on some of the things i talk about in that book you've also written a book haven't you and I believe it's also by the same publishers as the book that I'm I've written. Oh, really? Isn't that right? Yeah, Bite Back, isn't it? 
Bite back, yeah. Bite so, back you, so when did you write your book? Published in 2017. Okay. Um, so um, I wanted to write a book, and by various means, I was doing some work at Sky at the time um, through contact at Sky, got in touch with Biteback Publishers that was then uh, being run by Ian Dow, the LBC presenter. So yeah. I spoke to a couple of presenters at Sky, Kay Burley and a couple of the others, um, and Ian Dow was doing like paper reviews on Sky at the time. Uh, and I've never actually seen him at Sky when I was doing my bits for them, but uh, they yeah. basically kindly gave me his email address, put me in contact with him. Graham does our policing stuff for us. Can you have a chat with him? He'd like to write a book. And I was going to write my my autobiography, my, my policing story. Yeah. Went for a meeting with Ian, who's a big West Ham fan, by the way. Went for a yeah. meeting with Ian um, in the office uh, in Lambeth. And he said, oh, we don't, you know, if you write your autobiography, that's going to be of interest to what, you and like 300 people you've worked with. And I was like, yeah, I suppose so. So he said, well, uh, bite back, we're doing like a how-to, how to yeah. be, and mainly political books, how to be a parliamentary secretary, how to be an MP, how to be a, a this, this, this. He yeah. said, well, we'll do the how-to books. What about how to be a police officer? He said, can you write it as an informative guide, but with some of your stories in, in you know, you can put some of your anecdotes in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they then decided they would, I could write it because I sent like a, a draft chapter in. And they went, well, do you want a ghostwriter? Do you want to write it? I said, well, you tell me. I've never done it, you know, first time, never done this before. So he said, well, we've read your chats. We actually think, you know, see how you get on. Try and write it yourself. And if you mm. struggle, we're, we're throw a ghostwriter your way to help yeah. you out. Yeah. And I wrote the whole thing myself in about three months, three right. slash four months. Um, and it's basically, although it's now four years since publication, yeah. my view, I'm biased, I think it still stands the test of time. I think it's still a great read and yeah. a great guide for anybody who wants to be a police officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some things that are slightly out of date about how we join now. The CKP is now gone. It's now degree degree entry mostly across the country. But, but policing's not, policing, isn't it, really? Yeah, it doesn't change. The bits about, you know, what it's like, what you need to do, uh, being a detective, driving police cars, they all still stand the test of time. The basic the basic information or guidance in there still stands. And, uh, you know, I wrote mm. it with, the, with a lot of help at Bite Back, with the editing, mm. et cetera, structure. Yep. Um, I'd do it slightly differently if I was doing it again, I'd have to say. I think I'd put a few pictures in there yeah. um, and change it slightly if I was to do it, if I had to do it back, if I could take it back to when I wrote yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would do it slightly differently. But yeah. I loved writing it. I'd love to write another one. I've been in touch with them and having to think about it. I'd love to write a second one, just about maybe protest policing. Yeah, yeah, protest, yeah. But, yeah. Um, so, so in terms of, obviously, that's a really, really helpful guide to people who are, thinking of becoming police officers or training to be a police officer or maybe yeah. quite early in their yeah. service, Young service. kind of accelerate their their knowledge which I think is brilliant because I do think there is huge gaps in in people's knowledge particularly I certainly saw that towards the tail end of my service so mm. so just to sort of discuss the the notion that I was trying to put forward in my book around Tango Juliet Foxtrot which as you know stands for TGF, which stands for the jobs fucked, which we all we all said in the Met. Everyone's been saying in the Met. I think I think the Met was founded in 1829. I think I've been saying it since uh, Yeah, they said, told it when I joined in nineteen eighty the job was fucked. It's now saying. changed slightly. It's it's TJRF now the job's really fucked. They they've oh, right, thrown, okay. they thrown a so, really good so, current guys. So as as you know from a previous conversation we've had, um you know the 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 the, the idea I was putting forward in the book was that the British police service, not just the men, the British police service is in trouble um, for all mm. sorts of different reasons. Um, what what are your thoughts on all of that uh, from where you, because obviously you are a regular sort of media, you're 
still speaking to the media regularly you're yeah. contributing to you're helping journalists to understand how policing works so you're all you're obviously passionate about policing um what, what are your kind of thoughts and observations about all of that i think there's been whether there's a conspiracy whether there's uh, underlying reasons why i think there was there was a period of time um when politicians were um not just unsupportive of police i think they were actually actively almost working against it to undermine it Mm-hmm. Um, and I think society struggles when policing starts to struggle and gets criticised. Yes, we get things wrong. It's not perfect. You're dealing with people. So it's human reactions, human responses. Mm-hmm. Yes, we all have bad days. We've all had like four hours sleep, gone into work, driving a police car, get to a call, and you're a bit grumpy, you're a bit short when you aren't speak to people. Um, but I think this, there's this negative narrative around policing in certain sections of the media and maybe in certain, certain people in, in positions of power. And I think that you, they're the only ones you ever hear from when something that you could criticise policing about is highlighted on news. Good news stories really come up in policing. I've had the conversation with some media bosses I've worked with and for. I've said to them, I think there's no balance here. It's just critical. I think I'm key, I'm passionate about there being some balance. Yes, I can see when cops have got things wrong on some protest events, when they haven't quite grabbed hold of a group that are causing disorder. And I've criticised policing for that. I've criticised the responses in some public order events and some some crime scenes, etc. But by the same token, there needs to be balance in most of the reports. A lot of this stuff around stop and search is nearly always critical. Um, And I think if you're going to report the news, if you're going to report stuff in the media, you have to have both. Policing, Policing taught me that whenever I went to an incident, there were always like three versions of what went on. There's yeah, two yeah. people there. There's there's one person's version. There's person two's version, and somewhere between the two is what actually happened. Yep, yep. And I don't think there's a balance in some media reporting. I think it's just one perspective. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's where policing suffers. It, there needs to be, and that's why I started speaking out in the media and talking and doing interviews because I think, and it isn't just about being pro-policing or supportive. It's just trying to explain maybe what's yeah. gone on. Yeah, accepting yeah. that they might have got some things wrong because they did we all get him wrong we've all made mistakes there's no one in, in yeah. any any job that's ever gone i've done my job completely without ever making a without getting anything wrong yeah and i suppose my big concern about all of this is and again i don't want to be some blind apologist for uh for policing because uh you know i've seen uh, like you i've i've worked with some real assholes over the years and in, in <laughs> the police you know they, they're out there aren't they they yeah. we all, we've all worked with them um but but that's but they're not the they're not the majority are they? They're, it's like any organisation. Every organisation has its people who just probably shouldn't be in the organisation at all. I've got not the the right values or behaviours or whatever. But generally speaking, my vast majority of the people that I dealt with and work with over over my career, as I'm sure you did as well, were are decent people. But that's that's not to mean that they don't get things wrong from time to time. Of course no. they do. Um, show me a profession that doesn't get things Absolutely. wrong. You know. But it seems but, to me they're not all tarnished with the same brush, are they? They're, yeah. they're not all, it's not all like all doctors, all plumbers, all builders are because of yeah, one, one yeah. major you see on the news. Yeah. And I suppose my my real concern about all of this ultimately is where does it where does it where is it going really? So if if what is the if there is an agenda, if there is some sort of I don't know, dark Machiavellian kind of agenda at play here. What what does the end result of that agenda look like? Is it lawlessness? Is it because you can't just um, get rid of the police? Um, you know, 
what 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 is the end game of this look like? Because we're we're in this weird situation now, aren't we? Where we've got um, a, an epidemic of knife crime taking the lives of so many young men up and down the country, and particularly in London. Um, you know, teenage kids mm. di- dying, and yet we've got this very anti-police narrative about stop and search and about disproportionality and all these different things. I don't really want to get into the disproportionality no, thing, no. <laughs> but, but but it's just, I'm just not quite sure where where that narrative, what the end game looks like. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it depends who you're talking to. I think there's different strands there. I did a lot of my policing with like um, anti-establishment groups who were uh, anti-authoritarian, as always, always anti-something, anti-this and anti-that, but clearly wanted no no state control, no 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 gods, no masters, no mm. rules, no laws. So lawlessness, and just let let why can't people just manage themselves? Great concept, but then the bullies will, will come to the fore. Mm. That the more stronger, dominant characters will take over, and people will enforce their own their own. Um, not laws, but their own beliefs, etc. Yeah. Well, so you, just, you just described an organised crime group there, haven't you, really? Absolutely. But they, a lot of people don't see it as that. They just think this this nice utopian world where people could all live happily together and we all decide things and, and shake hands, etc., and wave at each other and talk and discuss things freely and we're allowed to have different views and we're going to respect that. That doesn't happen with criminals. I'm, it's sad to say that there's a section of, of society who clearly just want to do what they want to do because they can. And then you move on to... Um, I think there's a, a financial aspect to it. If you if you remove some functions from policing, you create an opportunity for a business. Yeah, yeah. I think some people see an opportunity to maybe take some functions of police away, and I can actually create my own company to fill that gap and get paid yeah. money for it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think there's different strands yeah. of, of why why this negative narrative and, mm. and the police seem to be the favoured like. Yeah. The ones, that, the ones who, the ones who I find particularly odd in terms of their weird, messed up thinking, tends to be the Daily Mail. Actually, of all the media <laughs> outlets, they seem to be the the one who are doing most police bashing because because they t- try to portray themselves as the voice of Middle England, don't they? The sort of the reasonable person, you know. And yet, yeah, they um, won't serialize <laughs> your book now. <laughs> I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> I don't care. But um, yeah, and the, and then and then the Guardian are a funny one as well, aren't they? I mean, I think uh, there's some great journalism in the Guardian. But uh, I was reading this really interesting article. It was quite a long article the other day where they were talking about the the proliferation of organised crime groups and gangsters in Marbella and Porto Bonus in uh, the Costa del Sol. And, uh, you know, what an absolute uh, disaster that has been for yeah. uh, Spanish law enforcement. And and uh, and yeah, and then you, you turn the page and they'll be talking about some supposed, um, you know, breach of human rights that some police officer has done somewhere. And you go, hold on here. You can, you know, you kind of, you kind of it both ways, can you? Yeah. Thank you ever so much, Graham. You've been an absolute star. Um, I've learned a lot, um, you know, from your world. It's not a world I particularly understand very well, but I feel as if I understand a lot better than I now than I did before. So, uh, so yeah, I wish you well. And what's uh, the future? Are you going to do some more media stuff? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. I, I, I touched a lot on it, but I, you know, I moved into that literally by by luck, by by just sending an email to Sky when I was watching the student protest, sitting at home on my sofa, throwing things at the telly. They were getting the all the all the terminology was was, was being wrongly described and 
the police were being criticised, so I sort of threw an email into them saying, I can tell you this. I was sitting in the back. I had no intention of going in front of the camera. Just, oh. I was sitting in the back and just t- explain to you what all the different you know, acronyms are, etc. And I got a, do you want to come in and do a piece of the camera? So I did like a recorded bit with Mark White, home affairs guy. Mm-hmm. And then next day I got a phone call, you want to come in and do a presenter's friend? I had no idea. First day I walked into Sky, going to be a presenter's friend. I put my bag down and the floor manager came and got me at the, the green room as it is. Yeah. Um, no brief, no chat. Literally, I literally got out of my car, walked in, sat down. Floor manager comes to get me. You, Graham? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm Jeff, the floor manager. So Jeff walks me out. He's got the old headphones on, like you have. Um, had a headset of headphones on. So we walk out, and there's Dermot Murnahan sitting there reading the news headlines. And he just literally picked the chair up, clicked the mic on, and sat me next to him. And I thought, I'm sitting there thinking, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and go, ah. <laughs> only, only joking. And literally, we went live two minutes later with, with the student protest. And I... I didn't stop from there. You know, they run the they run the week after, the week after that, the week after that. Uh, I've covered some big stories with Sky, um, oh, good. and they, they've been really good. But yeah, I still do some media stuff. Still happy to do radio and TV. Um, yeah. Lucky position to be able to speak. Mm. And I must say, sometimes the right things because they, they keep ringing or there's yeah, not yeah. people to talk about it. But I think you have to be careful when you're we're not careful as such. But I think people are listening to you and take you as almost like the voice of policing. Yeah, to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's it, it takes and not it's not to everybody's. It's suppose I've rung loads of people up saying you want to you know with the specialism. Are you happy to go and talk? And like, I don't want to do TV. I don't know how you deal with that. I view it as being like almost like being back at court, being asked yeah, yeah. questions. I just treat it as a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Not confrontational. No, that's great. And in the current climate, desperately needed, desperately to have someone there who knows what they're talking about, who isn't, like I say, going to be like a blind apologist for policing, but it's just going to have a bit of balance there because that's what's very, very obviously lacking in the current narrative. Yeah. Listen, my friend, thank you ever so much for everything. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, enjoyed I'll, it. Uh, look forward to uh, buying you a beer at some time in the near Yeah, that'd be lovely. <laughs> Go out and find a few wombles on Wimbledon Common now. <laughs> Listen, mate, thanks a million. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, mate. Bye-bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>